Hello, you're listening to the Duke Law Podcast from the Duke University School of Law. I'm Lee Reiners, lecturing fellow and executive director of the Global Financial Market Center at Duke Law. This episode has been selected from our regular schedule of guest speakers, panel discussions, and scholarly conferences. I hope you enjoy it. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Lee Reiners, and I am the Executive Director of the Global Financial Market Center here at Duke Law. And today marks our first event of the fall semester, and we couldn't be more pleased to kick things off with such a distinguished guest. Richard Cordray served as the first Director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau from 2012 to 2017. Prior to his appointment, Rich variously served as Ohio's Attorney General, Solicitor General, and Treasurer. We were originally supposed to host Rich in person this past April upon the release of his new book, Watchdog, How Protecting Consumers Can Save Our Families, Our Economy, and Our Democracy. But unfortunately, the pandemic forced us to postpone his visit. Uh, But the good news is that this gave all of you more time to read Rich's wonderful uh, book, which provides an inside account of how the CFPB quickly became a powerful force for good, suing big banks for cheating or deceiving consumers, putting limits on predatory lenders, simplifying mortgage paperwork, and stepping in to help solve problems raised by individual consumers. Throughout his career in public office, Rich has been a tireless advocate for America's consumers, and we are very fortunate to have him with us today. Rich, welcome to Duke Law. My pleasure, Lee. So we will use the last uh, 20 or 15 minutes or so for audience questions, so I would encourage all of you to submit your questions uh, through the chat function here in Zoom, and then we will get to them uh, at the end of this session. Uh, and Rich, before we get into a bit of your your background and how you got to the CFPB, I want to just initially hear your thoughts on uh, why consumer protection matters. And you make a very uh, forceful argument in your book. I think most of us, when we think of consumer protection, we recognize it from a, just a, a fairness and ethics standpoint. But you actually argue that uh, protecting consumers is good for the economy and good for our democracy. So why is that? Well, for, for a number of reasons, Lee, but just at a basic level, uh, protecting consumers uh, in what is a very sophisticated marketplace now for financial services uh, is important just to make sure people are in the best position to make the most of their lives and improve their uh, financial well-being, which, of course, is pretty fundamental to our success as individuals uh, in this society. Uh, Beyond that, one might say about consumer finance issues, well, if people have problems, those problems are of their own making, and therefore the harm should fall where it lies, uh, and they should have to bear it. Uh, but as I try to show in my book through numerous examples, that, that is true in some circumstances, no question. Uh, but in many circumstances in this marketplace, people can be deceived, uh, misled, cheated, uh, victims of predatory behavior of various kinds, and I want to make that clear uh, that some things should be prohibited and other things should be policed. Another point, though, is that if enough consumers have significant problems in these markets, that can cr- create consequences that pose externalities for the rest of our society. There's no better illustration of that than the meltdown in the mortgage market in 2008, 2007, 2009. Uh, that led to the cratering of our economy at that time. There were millions of people who lost jobs, many of whom had never had anything to do with a mortgage. There were millions of people who lost their homes, some of whom were in bad, irresponsible mortgages, some of which were their fault, some of whom were in bad, irresponsible mortgages because of predatory conduct, and many of which 
were either in responsible mortgages affected by the collapse of the housing market and housing valuations uh, or otherwise innocent uh, victims and bystanders who were caught up uh, in the crisis. So for all of those reasons, uh, consumer financial protection, which is a species of consumer protection, but a somewhat distinct species, as we've now learned, uh, is very important to the functioning of the economy. And it has effects on our democracy. When you have a big economic collapse, it's going to have political consequences. They are sometimes uh, unpredictable uh, and erratic, uh, but definitely that is going to flow uh, from an economic catastrophe. That's right, and unfortunately we're um, experiencing a similar type of crisis, uh, albeit different in some ways right now, and we'll get to that uh, later. But uh, you know, what brought you to the CAPB, Rich, and what was your initial role once you arrived at the Bureau? So, uh, as it happens, my background was tailor-made for uh, going to the CFPB and becoming its director, although nobody would have known that at the time. The CFPB, of course, didn't exist. Uh, until it was uh, enacted into law in 2010 and didn't open its doors until 2011. Uh, it wasn't even on anybody's radar screen other than a, at the time, somewhat obscure, uh, ultimately somewhat celebrated uh, article published by a law professor named Elizabeth Warren uh, in the journal Democracy in 2007. So notably before the crisis uh, unfolded, in which she called for an agency to be dedicated to protecting consumers in the financial marketplace, making the analogy to physical consumer products where we have developed considerable protections over the years, ranging from strict liability and tort uh, to specific statutes and regulatory regimes uh, to the consumer financial marketplace where for consumer financial products, uh, and her comparison was a toaster that had an X percentage chance of burning down your home by malfunctioning and a uh, irresponsible predatory mortgage, which had an X percentage chance of ousting you from your home uh, if it malfunctioned and noted that there was no real protection that was being afforded or, or not much uh, that was being afforded to people in the financial marketplace. Uh, so in my background was I was a uh, elected official in various capacities. I had a background academically in law and economics. Uh, in fact, I was in the law and economics program at University of Chicago with people like professors uh, Richard Posner and Frank Easterbrook uh, and had studied economics as an undergraduate and at, and at Oxford University before going to law school. Uh, and then I, through a series of positions, was a financial uh, official in Ohio. In fact, I was the treasurer of the state of Ohio in 2007 and 2008. So was responsible for safeguarding the state's money during the financial crisis itself, and then was elected and became attorney general in 2009-2010, where we were dealing with the fallout of the financial crisis, and we had significant lawsuits uh, against uh, many of the players on Wall Street, uh, including AIG, uh, Bank of America, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. Uh, for uh, damaging our pension systems and taxpayers in the state of Ohio that only led to $2 billion in recoveries. So I was very deeply involved in all of this. And that's one of the reasons why uh, I got a call from a woman I had never met, Elizabeth Warren, uh, who was recruiting me to come to the Bureau. And as she uh, described it, try to do on a 50 state basis, what you've been trying to do on a, on a single state uh, basis, 
with better tools and better authorities. And that was a, it was pretty much an irresistible offer to me, although it meant a long distance commute from Ohio to Washington, D.C., because my family was settled in Ohio. I'd never contemplated working in Washington, D.C. as a result, uh, which I agreed to do for a year or two. And then when I became director, ended up committing to do it uh, and ultimately did it for seven long years of going back and forth about 350 times uh, uh, each week uh, to be home on the weekends with my family and in Washington during the week doing that work. I was not unusual. There were a number of people at the Bureau who took on long distance commutes because they saw this as a once in a lifetime opportunity to affect public policy in this area. Absolutely. So I believe your initial role when you came to the Bureau was Director of Enforcement. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong. So talk about what that role entailed. And then, you know, also you overlap with uh, Elizabeth Warren, now Senator Warren, when you first arrived. So what did you learn from her when you were there? Sure. So I arrived at the Bureau in January of 2011. Uh, that was very early in the development of the Bureau. And notably, this was a federal agency that was created from scratch. It was authorized brand new uh, in the law, the Dodd-Frank Act that passed in 2010. Uh, and we had to build it from scratch. It wasn't, it was the first time a federal, new federal agency of any significance had been created uh, afresh in at least 50 years since the Great Society. Uh, and so at the time I arrived, we were still less than 50 people. Uh, and we were spending a lot of our time building the agency. We didn't even yet have the authority to exercise our powers until July of 2011. That's the way Congress had structured uh, the timeframes. Uh, so for that six months I was there, I was working with Elizabeth Warren, who was sort of nominally heading the Bureau, although she was not the director and there had been no director nominated yet. Uh, and my job was to set up and organize the enforcement function, which was going to be a very important function. We were going to be having to hold the banks and other large financial companies responsible for complying with the law and uh, enforcing them for violations of the law. Worked very similar to what I had done as a higher attorney general. And she very much wanted somebody in that role who had good relations with the other state attorneys general because they were going to be some of our partners in that effort, along with the Justice Department, along with the other federal financial regulatory agencies. So there was a lot of very interesting work to do, uh, both to build the agency and to plan and strategize how we were going to use our authorities uh, to make a difference in the different marketplaces we were dealing with. Sure, and the, the Bureau was very contentious politically from the, the beginning. Um, and ultimately, I think, you know, from the book, those political uh, fights influenced um, who the first director was. So he maybe just provide a little background uh, on that and, and what ultimately led to you becoming uh, the, the Bureau's first director. Yes, and by the way, I'm trying to answer your questions each in a reasonable amount of time, although for lots of background in many cases. So uh, again, the financial crisis of 2008 that cratered the economy and created the Great Recession, which lasted for many years, uh, was a seminal event in American society. And it led, as typically happens, to uh, efforts to create reform in the Congress, to think about what had caused that problem, what kinds of problems could be mitigated or resolved through new reform efforts, one of those was to create the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. 
Uh, it was the only real new element or component of government that was created out of the crisis. And as a result, it was a lightning rod for anti-government or small government um, uh, officials uh, who were opposed to the notion that we needed, as they saw it, a new bureaucracy to deal with problems that should be either left to the free market uh, or could be handled through existing uh, means. Uh, and then what happened was the Congress that passed the Dodd-Frank Act ha had Democratic uh, majorities in both the House and Senate. That was how it was able to get through. It turned out to be a partisan bill, which is unfortunate. You would have thought a large reform effort like that would have been a bipartisan or even nonpartisan in some ways effort, but it became very partisan as did healthcare around the same time. Uh, and ultimately it sparked uh, a political revolution. As I said, economic affairs lead to political consequences. The Tea Party movement in 2010, which was based on uh, anti-government, uh, limiting government, uh, reducing the budget deficit uh, and less interference with the free market. Uh, that was a revolution that led to a dramatic uh, turn in the House of Representatives where Republicans gained a significant majority for the first time in, in some years. Uh, and uh, that led to political backlash so that the Consumer Bureau became something of a political football between Democrats and Republicans really during the whole time I was there. And if you ever watched or wanted to go back and look at one of the congressional testimonies, of which I did many, uh, more than three dozen, uh, there was always uh, a really contentious back and forth uh, between both sides of the aisle over whether what we were doing was good for consumers and good for the country, or whether it was the worst thing possible to have interference with the free market in ways uh, that were overdone and that actually might disserve consumers in the economy. Uh, that was a very lively debate, but also a very partisan debate uh, that uh, I was uh, put in the middle of, and we were put in the middle of. Sure, and so following up on that, you know, the contentious political uh, hearings that you attended, was there a difference between um, what you were hearing, you know, during these hearings and then what politicians were telling you behind the scenes? I mean, was there, there's always a certain element of posturing going on in these, in these hearings, but um, at least on the conservative side, I mean, were they, were they just adamant that they didn't want the Bureau or were they telling you a different tune behind the scenes? You remind me of a politics tutor I had at Oxford who once said it was unbearable that a certain politician would say the same things in public that they did in private. <laughs> in fact, uh, what I found was, I think people tend to have sincerely held views uh, and they articulated them often vigorously with us. But at the same time, it's certainly the case that in public settings, such as congressional hearings, uh, there was a certain amount of performance and things were ramped up uh, and, and more toxic. In a private setting, some of the people wouldn't meet with me. Some of them would meet with me, but the meetings were either somewhat contentious or you know, clearly rested on fundamental disagreements. And some of them, we could have civil conversations, but things might be different in a public setting. So for example, in a congressional hearing, many of the members who were opposed to us had their press releases ready to go before the hearing even began. They didn't care what the questions or answers were going to be. They knew what line they were taking and they were wanting to make sure that that uh, line was pushed forward. Uh, another problem in the hearings was typically the members get five minute segments 
to ask questions and have you answer them. Many of them didn't really want to have me answer their questions. Sometimes people would rattle through an entire five-minute segment uh, uh, fulminating about uh, various problems and never give me a chance to respond. Or, as you would see if you saw one of the hearings, uh, as soon as I started to respond, they would be quick to cut me off so that they could go forward with uh, presenting their questions again. So there were definite differences. I understood what the differences were. Uh, I tried never to take it personally, which doesn't really help, uh, and to try to engage in reasoned discussion as much as we could. Uh, by the way, my background was that I had been an appellate advocate for many years, which is maybe the height of reasoned discussion in our uh, legal system. I'd argued seven cases in the U.S. Supreme Court, but I'd never really encountered a setting for discussion uh, like I was having there, even though I'd been in front of the Ohio legislature as a public official many times uh, and always found those conversations more congenial, we could learn from one another, and we could make progress together. It was difficult to do that in the Consumer Bureau's peculiar political atmosphere. Sure. So you ultimately ascend to, to be the Bureau's first director uh, through a recess appointment. Um, so what were your initial priorities upon becoming director? And then did the fact that you were serving under a recess appointment influence the Bureau's ability to use all of its powers? Yeah, and by, by the way, first let me append a little bit to my other answer. One sure. that led to frustration in the Congress was there wasn't any realistic prospect of any actual substantive legislation being enacted with respect to the Consumer Bureau. We were on the defensive. There were efforts being made to reform us, to neuter us, to gut us from the outset. We were trying to make sure that did not happen. We weren't uh, very interested in affirmative legislation because the law that had been passed had given us broad authorities uh, and we were pretty content with that. So, and, and there was gridlock between the House and Senate, which were by different parties. Uh, and certainly President Obama would have vetoed any legislation that was uh, deemed harmful to the new Consumer Bureau while it was trying to get its legs under it. So that was part of the frustration when people aren't able to actually accomplish something uh, that leads to a very different type of discussion. Now, as to the recess appointment, uh, my nomination to be the director of the Bureau, which Elizabeth Warren recommended to President Obama, and he uh, made in July of 2011, was blocked from the outset in the Senate. Uh, the Democrats had a significant majority in the Senate, but they did not have 60 votes. And Republicans had pledged, uh, more than 40 Republicans had pledged to block any director uh, because they were opposed to the Bureau and wanted to see it change uh, before they would allow it to proceed un un unobstructed. Uh, and so for the first uh, several months, uh, my nomination advanced in the Senate, but was blocked from coming to the floor uh, on a vote where we got more than 50 votes, uh, but it wasn't enough to break a filibuster. President Obama was frustrated by that, and in January 2012, he made a decision, which is an unusual decision, but, but far from unprecedented. That happens, uh, has happened frequently over the years, to make a recess appointment, which is while Congress was uh, not in session, to appoint me as the director of the Bureau. He made three other appointments on the same day to positions on the National Labor Relations Board. Uh, and those, uh, those appointments are valid for a temporary period of time. They typically uh, extend to the end of the Congress in which the session of Congress in which they're made and the next session of Congress as well. 
And because of the timing, I talk about this in my book, uh, because of the peculiar timing, the first day of the new session, that gave me almost two years in the position, uh, which was important because if I'd only had one year in the position, I probably could, could never have ended up being confirmed. <clears throat> but because I was there for two years, uh, and we were able to pursue things like critical mortgage market reform rules, and people can see that they had been done well and in reasonable fashion. Ultimately, uh, I was finally confirmed two years from the date of my nomination uh, by a significant bipartisan vote in the Senate. I got 66 votes for confirmation. But the recess appointment was fraught. It was being challenged in the courts. Ultimately, the NLRB appointments made the same day were upset in the canning no canning decision by the U.S. Supreme Court a year and a half uh, later, uh, uh, and and so you know there were there were problems and contentions about this all the way through. Uh, there also were some issues about whether I had the full authority as director or not because I had not yet been confirmed by the Senate. Uh, we tended to push forward and treat it as though I did have full authority, which is typically the case with a recess appointment, but that was not free. Of, of legal difficulty. So you mentioned that uh, Congress granted the Bureau broad authorities in, in Dodd-Frank. And in addition, they mandated that the Bureau write a number of different rules that you know, touch on really all aspects of consumer finance. So you know, when you take the helm as director, how do you begin to prioritize that? I mean, what's kind of like, you know, the, how do you map out the first week, the first month? Um, and, and prioritize just this, this you know, flood of, of requirements that you have to put out? Well, it was, it was difficult, Lee. And the reality is that people who came to the Consumer Bureau, including myself, uh, might have known something about some of the markets we were dealing with, but it was highly unlikely that someone would know a lot about all of the markets we were dealing with. I mean, think about it. The mortgage market, which tends to be a specialty for people, the credit card market, the student loan market, the auto loan market, payday loans, international money transfers, debt collection, credit reporting. I mean, all of us were sort of learning on the job. Now, I actually had a lot of background in a lot of these areas as it happened through the happenstance of my peculiar experiences in government. I had a lot of background in debt collection, had a lot of background with the mortgage market. We had a foreclosure crisis in Ohio that we were working on. I had been involved in the credit card uh, reform rules that had been enacted by the Federal Reserve in 2009. Uh, so, you know, maybe my background was as broad as anyone's, but there still was much to learn. And the people who work with me would tell you that I'm not good at prioritization. I wanted to do everything at once. And of course, for much of that time with a short or, or partial staff. Uh, so it was, it was hard, hard times and hard going uh, early on. The other thing is, and this is important as a matter of uh, legal theory, uh, the independence of independent agencies is, of course, a bit of a fiction because it's all as prescribed by Congress. If, if, if agencies are exerting a certain amount of independence or enjoying a certain amount of independence, it's because Congress has authorized them to do so and made an explicit considered decision to do so. And yet Congress can always rein in that independence to the extent Congress wants to see certain things done. So for example, with the new Consumer Bureau, we were given broad authority, uh, discretionary authority to write various rules governing consumer finance. But in order to make sure that we prioritize the things Congress wanted us to prioritize, 
they mandated that we write certain mortgage market reform rules because that was, after all, the market that had broken the economy. And they mandated a time frame for those rules, uh, which was a very significant constraint on our ability to set our own agenda early on. And yet it, it clearly was the right approach, uh, but we had to write seven mortgage rules, adopt seven mortgage regulations, three of them major rules within the first 18 months, which was a backbreaking workload for any agency, let alone one that was still building itself up and maybe most of that time operating at about a third or half of its capacity. So let's talk a little bit about those mortgage related rules. I think one of the, the more well-known ones is this notion of a qualified mortgage. So what was the intention behind developing a qualified mortgage? And then what were some of the debates you were having internally uh, around how do you establish the parameters of what constitutes a qualified mortgage? Yeah, there were, there were many debates going on internally. Uh, as I say, Congress had stipulated that we had to write certain mortgage rules. Uh, and obviously these were going to have, you know, significant effect on the biggest consumer finance market of them all. The mortgage market is worth anywhere from nine to $12 trillion at any given time, uh, depending on uh, valuations and the like. And if we had gotten those rules wrong, uh, we could have very much uh, uh, undermined a very significant part of the American economy. Uh, how significant? Well, significant enough that irregularities and problems in it had led to a significant economic collapse and a prolonged uh, Great Recession. The other oddity of the situation was that at the time Congress had, had written the law and they provided some guidance in the law as to directions we should take, they were reacting to what had been a red hot, white hot mortgage market leading up to the financial crisis, an overvalued mortgage market in which assumptions were being made that were glib uh, and in, in retrospect, badly uh, off, off base about how home valuations would continue to appreciate over time uh, and, and the like. Uh, and mortgage lending had become increasingly irresponsible. The underwriting had deteriorated in ways that even Wall Street had not fully understood, which led to big losses uh, on Wall Street. Uh, then suddenly you had the crash of 2008, 2009. The mortgage market had changed dramatically and abruptly uh, to where lending had cooled. Uh, the irresponsible, a lot of the irresponsible behavior had uh, had ceased or diminished. Uh, a lot of the bad actors were put out of business. Uh, and suddenly we were writing rules for that market and the market looked very different than it had when Congress had legislated. Uh, and those rules took effect in January of 2012 and Congress had legislated in July of 2010. So there were, there were lots of uh, difficulties and our touchstone for writing the rule was to consider the data and think, think hard about the data and the key rule, as you described, uh, was the qualified mortgage rule. We, we called it the ability to repay rule, in which we were supposed to specify uh, what it meant for a lender to be required to make a reasonable assessment of the borrower's ability to repay the mortgage before they could make the mortgage. It was something of a procedural rule, but also a substantive rule. We ultimately settled on, you know, as opposed to some sort of down payment restriction uh, or lien to value. Uh, restriction, we settled on a, a um, uh, debt to income uh, ratio for it, 
which was not all that constraining of the market. We, we didn't think that we should be restricting the market further from the frozen, uh, somewhat barren nature of mortgage lending in 2011. Uh, and over time, the rules were, they were received well at the time, uh, which was to me bookmarked by the fact that Johnny Isaacson, a real estate expert and senator from Georgia, uh, who has, has just recently retired, was a longtime real estate expert. And he, uh, unexpectedly to us, suddenly one day on the Senate floor was opining that our rules had turned out, to his surprise, to seem very reasonable. Uh, he had expected us to overreach and to screw it up, uh, if you will. And he found that we had not and was pleasantly surprised, which actually helped ultimately my confirmation. Um, but also, there, there has been a five-year look back done on those, on those rules, including the Qualified Mortgage Rule, uh, by the Bureau under new leadership, which is not friendly uh, to me and, and my regime particularly. Uh, and their assessment was that the rule did improve the mortgage market, uh, and it did not unduly restrict access to credit, uh, and that the mortgage market has been able to recover significantly. By the way, a better marker, perhaps, was that in the Supreme Court case that was decided this summer, the CELA law case about the constitutionality of the Bureau, there was a noted brief filed by the Mortgage Bankers of America, which said, whatever you do in this case, even if you find the Bureau's leadership structure to be unconstitutional, do not wipe out the Bureau. Do not say it cannot function. Do not disrupt and dis uproot the rules that have been put in place to protect and reform the mortgage market, because those are working and working well and we couldn't function adequately uh, if that was disrupted. That was, to me, uh, a real uh, vote of confidence in what we had done. Absolutely, and we'll get to the CLA decision um, later, but I, I wanna go uh, touch on the role of data that in the, and how the Bureau utilized data in its rulemaking supervisory process. You talked a little bit about it in the context of the qualified mortgage rule, but what was the, the philosophy of the Bureau when it came to utilizing data. Clearly, you have uh, an economics background, so you're probably more familiar with, with data, but uh, you know, speaking of someone who teaches at a law school, I think it's fair to say most lawyers don't have that expertise. Um, so just talk about the, the, the role of data in the rulemaking process. Well, a, a mantra for the Consumer Bureau was that we were to be data-driven. I mean, enough so that I remember at one of my hearings, one of the Democratic uh, Congress uh, congressional representatives said, as she was asking her questions, she says, I know, I know, data-driven, data-driven. That, that, that's what we always said, but it was what we actually did. Uh, part of the, the um, of the Consumer Bureau was to develop and organize and assemble all the best data on the market so that we could actually make uh, as much as possible informed decisions about how to proceed. Now, I used to say, uh, and still feel, it would have been far better if I could have been director of the Bureau 20 years later, once we had all that market monitoring in place and we had assembled all that data for many years and we could have been more sure of ourselves. Early on, of course, we did not have it. We had to get it where we could find it, but we weren't yet in a position to uh, develop and organize our own data. And for some of the rulemakings we worked on, it took time and it delayed us uh, because we had to know more in order to make uh, better informed decisions. But early on in the mortgage market, uh, we were able to work with FHFA uh, to get uh, data about the mortgage market. And from that, we extrapolated as best we could. Uh, but clearly, if you're formulating public policy, 
in economic markets with many, many players, you know, millions of consumers and often dozens or more of providers, uh, you need data because it's, it's like the blind man and the elephant. You can be looking at a very partial picture that can be very misleading if you don't know more. Now, one of the things I talk about in my book, and I'm surprised somewhat in retrospect that it merits a full chapter in the book because it didn't seem like it would to begin with, but it turns out to be fascinating. We developed a consumer complaint uh, database. Uh, we encourage people to complain to us about financial products where they thought they had been mistreated or cheated. Uh, and ultimately, there has been a huge uh, use of that function. People have found that they've been able to get relief and responses and, and really have their problems worked on in a way that they find uh, fabulous and unexpected. Uh, they tell us, told us that all the time. Uh, but over time, we get, we get the Bureau now gets more than 30,000 complaints every month. And it provides real data. I mean, it's all individual stories and anecdotes, if you will, which economists tend to deride. Uh, yet when you assemble enough of it, uh, as is true of, of data, uh, it tends to average out in ways that becomes more dependable and more informative. And we learned a lot from that. It became a real diagnostic means of us having a finger on the pulse of consumers in America to use what we learned from that to help inform our actions. And what was the uh, financial industry's response to the to this database? Because much of it was made public. Uh, they hated it. <laughs> that was their response. Sure. If you're if you're a company, and people are complaining about you, the last thing you want is to see that aired out in public. Now, the reality is that companies have had to become more thick-skinned. I would tell them this; it didn't necessarily ease their reaction. Uh, because nowadays with social media, uh, complaints are much more public and people have various forums in which they can raise uh, these issues. What I also tried to convince the companies of, and a lot of them were persuaded over time, the best thing you can do as a company is pay close attention to your customer complaints, what they say about you. Because if you're the head of, let's say, J.P. Morgan Chase, Jamie Dimon, he's running a $2 trillion bank uh, with millions of customers in various different markets. He, he has intentions about how he intends the bank to run its operations. He has intentions about how they are to treat their customers. But it's very difficult to know whether that's being carried out or how that's being carried out. And one place where you can learn is from the customers who come back and complain about what they, what they think was done. Uh, now, all has to be taken with a grain of salt. All has to be, you know, trust but verify. Uh, the customer is always right is a nice nostrum, but it's not actually true. Uh, but it's an attitude and a state of mind. But it's certainly true that if a customer complains to you, they are making in whatever appealing fashion they can, some effort to maintain and improve the relationship. It'd be very easy for them just to walk away and take their business somewhere else. So a complaint is a lifeline for you to maintain that customer relationship. And if you can respond well to complaints over time, think about what they tell you about your business, adapt your business accordingly, you will end up with more satisfied customers, more chances of repeat business, uh, and a better reputation in the marketplace, less litigation, less regulatory problems, all of which was quite persuasive to a lot of the, uh, the good leaders that I dealt with uh, who strengthened their compliance system to pay more attention to their own customer complaints and consumer complaints about them to the Bureau and consumer complaints to the Bureau about others in the industry, which were often a canary in the coal mine for them about problems that they hadn't yet suffered themselves.
Sure, so I'd like to encourage uh, everyone listening to um, submit questions via the chat function if you have them. We'll get to them um, in about uh, five minutes or so. Uh, but until then, uh, Rich, I wanted to ask you about uh, the role of supervision compared to uh, enforcement actions. And so Dodd-Frank uh, gave the Bureau the ability to supervise uh, certain uh, financial institutions. Uh, in addition, you had the authority to take enforcement actions uh, via the courts. So how did you balance um, those two roles when it came to you know, trying to uh, correct bad practices or bring you know, relief to consumers? Yeah, that was an area where I had a fair amount to learn because unless you have a banking background uh, of some kind, uh, you're often not familiar with the supervision process which is a major means by which uh, regulators oversee the operations of banks, both at the federal level and state level, because some banks are nationally chartered banks under the National Bank Act, and therefore they are overseen by federal regulators, and some are state chartered, most are state chartered banks, the smaller ones, uh, and they are overseen by a state regulator, although for various other purposes, they may have federal regulators as well, such as every bank uh, gets federal deposit insurance and therefore has some oversight from the FDIC uh, and the Federal Reserve System uh, regulates bank holding companies, many of which exist even with smaller uh, banks. So they have the authority because they control the charter and the same is true of licensing regimes. Uh, if a state, typically licensing is done at the state level, if the state uh, can grant a license, it typically can condition that license on how you conduct your business. And if you do not conduct your business in accordance with the conditions of the license, you can have your license revoked and stop doing business altogether, which nobody wants. Uh, that is, nobody in business wants. And so it tends to control your behavior. And then the question becomes, how is that uh, monitored? How, do, how, do, how does the licensing entity oversee it uh, at the banking level? This is the source of all bank regulation. And they can send in teams, and it's understood that they can see whatever they want, they can talk to whoever they want, they can look at whatever documents they want, and they can size up whether you are complying with the law or whether you have problems, including not just violations of law, but safety and soundness problems in how you're operating the bank. Uh, and that leads to considerable amount of improvement of operations as a result. So it's almost like an auditing function with real teeth. Now, another means of going after uh, banks to improve their functions was the enforcement uh, uh, authority, which I was familiar with from being state attorney general, that is invest launching an investigation, potentially bringing a lawsuit or an enforcement action is if justified by the facts that you found in the investigation. Uh, and it's a more uh, blunt instrument uh, and it is a public instrument. Notably, the supervision process is typically confidential uh, and the rest of uh, the industry and the rest of the society don't know uh, what has been done there, just the bank involved. Uh, and to us, that impaired some of the, we were trying to accelerate change in the banking industry. We were trying to improve and reform uh, what had been some bad banking practices. And so we wanted the supervision process to inform other companies to fix their problems even before we came and did an exam of them because you can only do a few exams at a time and there are you know, many, many banks. 
so what we what we did uh, to square the circle on that was we developed a means of publishing information about what we found through our supervisory function without naming any particular bank, but by putting out uh, our supervisory highlights every few months, we could say during this period, we looked at a certain number of banks, a certain number of debt collectors, a certain number of credit reporting companies, and here are some of the problems we found uh, without, again, violating the confidentiality, but by informing the rest of the market so that they knew they needed to fix those same problems if they had them, knowing that when we came to see them, if we found the same problems, we would also uh, be looking to clean them up. So it was it was complex to try to decide which tool to use for different problems. Uh, I don't know that we ever felt that we mastered that. Uh, and you can use either tool in different ways, and they both involve certain upsides and downsides. I discussed this all in chapter, I believe it's seven uh, of the book, chapter six. I'll do that. Uh, but in any event, it's it's a fascinating uh, uh, discussion and uh, goes a lot to the effectiveness of law enforcement and some of the different approaches that can be taken. Yeah, fascinating indeed, Rich. So we got a few audience uh, questions here. Um, the first one is, uh, Rich, could you please speak to the process of working with the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice Consumer Protection Divisions as you built the CFPB and determined uh, issues and case ownership? Yeah, one of the interesting things that a lot of people don't realize uh, at first is that when you take a new agency like the CFPB and you set it down within the existing regulatory structure of our federal government, uh, there are lots of things that have been set down in that structure over the years, typically responding to felt problems of the moment, uh, but not necessarily rationalizing the whole system in any way that seems consistent or logical. So, for example, there are multiple federal banking regulatory agencies. The control of the currency was created during the Civil War originally to deal with uh, the fact that we had no paper currency at the time and to help uh, understand and figure out and, and uh, uh, put that in place. We had the Federal Reserve System that was created uh, at the time of just before World War I, uh, which was responding to bank panics uh, that had uh, affected the economy uh, and, and better oversight of those problems. We had the FDIC, which was created during the Depression to deal with the fact that runs on the banks had caused many depositors to lose their money. Uh, and we put in place a system of deposit insurance, which has been very successful over the years, not widely imitated around the world, but, but has been uh, very successful. All of those entities have some authority over banks in the United States. And in each case, they weren't all that easily rationalized with one another. Now here comes the CFPB. Uh, and instead of being focused on the safety and soundness of those institutions, they're now gonna focus on their customers and whether they're being treated properly in the marketplace. Uh, and so uh, we had to coordinate with all of them. And as you say, the Federal Trade Commission, which had been created uh, around the time of World War I uh, to regulate trade practices in our society, does not have authority over banks. Notably, that's a significant uh, omission for the FTC. Uh, and by the way, in many of these financial markets, you have banks that compete against non-bank companies uh, in the same marketplace. And so to have the regulation be balkanized in that fashion is not all that effective and undermines its ability to achieve uh, the intended results. But the Federal Trade Commission had a certain amount of consumer protection authority also has some antitrust authority. 
And the Justice Department, of course, can prosecute and enforce uh, violations of both civil and criminal law. So they were both, uh, we had to make them partners. In fact, we were required to have a memorandum of understanding with both the FTC and separately with the Justice Department on different issues as to how we were going to exercise our authorities. Uh, fortunately, because President Obama was a big supporter of our agency, he had made it clear, I believe, to all of his cabinet officials uh, and to uh, his appointees that they should work with us, that, that they should help us uh, accomplish our objectives. And uh, they were like-minded with us in many ways as well. And so uh, we didn't get into the kind of turf battles that you sometimes do. Uh, and we actually worked quite effectively, although it took a lot of coordination, a lot of consultation, uh, a lot went on behind the scenes to make that happen. Thank you, Rich. So uh, we have two questions from my uh, colleague and the center's faculty director, Lawrence Baxter. I'll ask you the, the first, and then um, you can answer that, Rich, and then you can ask the second later. Um, but he wants to know, um, you know why prudential regulators pre-crisis weren't more attuned to issues around consumer protection. And he makes the point that uh, as an, a shareholder uh, and an employee of, of a financial company that he worked at, it shall remain nameless, uh, he was angry that uh, the company made such stupid loans. Uh, of course, other companies made even uh, worse loans. Uh, and he says that a prudential regulator is not half asleep, should have been stopping this practice. So it seems to be paradoxical um, of the otherwise necessary structural separation between the prudential regulators and the new market regulator, which is the CFPB. So do you have thoughts on why uh, prudential regulators dropped the ball on, on consumer protection? Yeah, there, there are lots of pieces of potential explanation of that problem. Uh, I'll, I'll just mention a few. Uh, first, uh, I don't think that the uh, regulatory regimes for a number of these markets had been thoughtfully rationalized in some time. Uh, and again, you had in many markets, the mortgage market was a great example, you had banks competing against companies that were not banks, not held to the same standards as banks, in some cases weren't even licensed as a matter of state law, uh, making mortgages uh, and and so you, you didn't have a level playing field of regulation and oversight. You didn't have comprehensive oversight uh, and you had different approaches being taken in different places. And to the extent some of it's being covered by states, there are different approaches in different uh, states due to resources, due to laws, due to focus, due to ideology, if you will. Uh, you also had to some extent, I think it's undeniable, uh, problems of capture at the regulatory agencies, which is something economists have noted for some time going back to uh, the 1970s, I think it was Stieglitz's Stiegel, article on uh, capture theory of regulation, that they became, they, they began to identify more with the institutions they were regulating than with the mission of the regulation itself. Uh, if you spend all your time uh, with a certain bank, and by the way, it wasn't even the custom at the time for the major regulators to rotate uh, their examiners, they would, they would be ensconced at the bank for years at a time. They would constantly refer familiarly to our banks uh, or my bank, uh, and they very much identified with the success of that bank. And if the regulator is focused on preserving the safety and soundness of a bank, uh, they will they will tend to see that as their goal. Consumer protection was somewhere on the list. Consumer compliance, which is what it was for these examiners, and yet it was not prioritized. And it was not thought necessarily, people didn't really believe 
that consumer compliance problems could loom large enough to uh, actually undermine uh, and damage a bank severely. So I think they were they were not it was not recognized how significant these problems could become. Uh, the mortgage market meltdown was a real wake up call to a lot of people and surprised a lot of people uh, at the time. Uh, there are other pieces of explanation, including uh, political ideology and the like. Uh, but uh, that those are certainly parts of the answer. And those were things that were attempted to be addressed in the Dodd-Frank Act, particularly by giving the CFPB comprehensive uh, jurisdiction over uh, all the players in a given financial market who competed to provide services to consumers. Sure, so uh, Professor Baxter also notes that um, a prosecutorial approach was understandable given what had happened in the run-up to the crisis, so your agency's initial prosecutorial approach. Um, however, it, it led to a predictable result, namely that entities that had not hitherto experienced bank regulation and the banking agency's enforcement powers, but only uh, anemic uh, Federal Trade Commission enforcement, were suddenly confronted by an agency with great enforcement powers, which would suggest that the initial perspective of the CFPB should have been more educational uh, with enforcement only uh, ramping up after a number of years. Uh, your book does actually talk about the educational component coupled with enforcement. So uh, how did you think about these issues together, Rich? Well, as I say in my book, uh, there are lighter touch authorities that a regulator has and there are heavier touch, com more compulsory authorities. Uh, the financial industry never wants the agency to use the compulsory authority, that is enforcement, supervision, and regulation, being able to actually make them do things that they don't want to do or not do things that they would prefer uh, to do. Uh, the lighter touch approaches are to, uh, to modify disclosures so that different information is being presented to uh, consumers, make sure that that's accurate information, that it's complete information, but that it doesn't overwhelm, which is a big problem in consumer finance, the fine print we all know. Uh, gets very fine and very dense and very complex. Uh, and also financial education of consumers. The more a consumer knows, the less likely it is that they should experience problems. Uh, and it was always the case that the financial industry thought we should use disclosure and financial education first and not use enforcement, supervision, and regulation uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, my attitude was consistent with my prior comment about lack of prioritization, we should use all those tools and we should push forward in, in all of them. Uh, now, it was certainly the case that financial institutions were shocked in some cases at our aggressiveness to uh, use our tools to create change, but in, in some ways that was an important form of education for them. Uh, they needed to be shaken out of their complacence that everything was fine and there were no problems. I mean, Wells Fargo, never believed that they had any real problems in their operations. Uh, and, and those that they did see uh, or, or become uh, uh, should have become aware of, they overlooked. Uh, and yet what we found ultimately was that they had uh, thousands of employees whom they fired, uh, opening millions of phony accounts for customers in order to meet goals that were unrealistic and to save their jobs and make their bonuses. Uh, that was going on at a what had been viewed as a very reputable financial institution for years uh, and until we intervened to clean that up. Uh, should we have educated them to stop doing it and let it go at that 
and not impose the penalties and not impose the kinds of compulsory changes that were needed to make sure that it was cleaned up immediately. I don't think that would have been tough enough. I don't think it would have been uh, significant enough to meet the problem. And so it was very important for us uh, to show the industry that we meant business so that they would get more serious about looking internally at their own operations and clean them up faster. So another question we have, Rich, um, is regarding the consumer complaint database. And specifically, uh, did the complaints that you were receiving comport with uh, what you expected to see and, and then what, what you were also seeing through your standard market monitoring functions, uh, in particular in regards to mortgage lending or any other lending markets? That's a really good question because, uh, it, first of all, it rests on what did we expect to see. In some uh, areas, we thought we would see certain things. And in some areas, we genuinely weren't sure. And in some areas, we were surprised. I mean, the nature of data is that if you are, if you are um, unbiased about the data, uh, you will find some things that confirm uh, predispositions that you may have had. You will find things that refute those predispositions. You may tend to resist those for a time until you're really persuaded by the data. Uh, but if you're being data-driven, you're, you're going to uh, watch and listen and, and form your conclusions accordingly. Uh, in, in the uh, consumer complaints, uh, I was uh, you know, surprised at times by some of what we saw. Uh, and sometimes it was clear to me that we weren't getting enough data about certain things. You know, the reality is how many consumers who have the same kind of problem actually end up making a complaint to a government agency? It's some small fraction. I mean, un undoubtedly, if somebody told us that there was a problem with their credit card that was a, uh, a valid uh, problem, there were many other people suffering a similar problem who just didn't know or didn't think or wouldn't bother uh, to complain uh, about it. So uh, one of the things we tried to do was to use the complaint data to open at times investigations or uh, examinations of banks so that we could see whether there was more to it or not. Uh, you know, not, not being sure uh, whether that would bear it out or not bear it out, but knowing that we had tools to learn more uh, and to ultimately uh, make judgments uh, about it. But the other thing that we found, and the reason this complaint data was so significantly important, uh, was that in real time, it told us things that were happening. So for example, at one point, there was a problem with a prepaid card company. Uh, this is where you, you pay money to the company to get a card with the money uh, loaded onto it that you can then spend. Uh, this prepaid card company had had a problem in its processing. The cards were freezing up. People weren't being able to get their money uh, and use it when they wanted. We knew about the problem before the company leadership knew about the problem because we were getting consumer complaints on it immediately, whereas at the company, those complaints were being looked at lower down the chain. Uh, inevitably, there's a bit of a delay because people lower down the chain want to solve the problem for themselves. They don't want to have to respond you know, to report it to supervisors until they're sure that it is a problem or that they can't fix it on their own. Uh, and so we were actually surprising corporate executive leadership at times by informing them about problems they hadn't heard about from their own people. Uh, and that was a very educative uh, uh, turn of events because it helped the, the CEOs realize 
that they were not going to be easily able to hide things from us. And therefore, when they had a problem, it was best to deal with it straightforwardly and in a matter of fact way, which is always how I wanted them to deal with problems. And we tried very hard to persuade them that that was the right approach. Rich, we only have a few minutes left, and I can't let you go without asking you about the SELA law decision from uh, this past June, where the Supreme Court found that the CFPB's structure of a single director appointed by the president and removable only for cause violates uh, the separation of powers. So can you talk about the origins of this case um, and what the court's finding means for the future of the CFPB and its ability to protect consumers? Well, if you use Google, you'll find that there's a definitive series of articles I wrote about that case, both before it was decided and after it was decided. I'm joking a bit, but uh, from my point of view, they're definitive. Uh, I had predicted at the time the case was presented and, and argued, and I was in the courtroom for the argument, as were uh, both, my, both of my successors, uh, that the, uh, the court would find uh, by a narrow and, and splintered majority that the leadership structure of the Consumer Bureau is unconstitutional, but that they would limit the effect of the ruling to uh, excising that provision from the law. So that the difference now being that the director of the Consumer Bureau, instead of having a five-year tenure and only being able to be uh, removed for cause, uh, now can be replaced at any time by the President of the United States, but would not otherwise invalidate the agency's actions or uh, up, uproot the agency or perhaps uh, eliminate it altogether, uh, in part because there was a severance, severability clause in the statute that should be honored and was in fact honored by the court. Uh, and so the upshot of the decision in my mind is that in some ways it's very good. I My Washington Post editorial was that, uh, op-ed was that the uh, what looks like a loss for the CFPB is truly a win. Why? Because number one, it really has resolved for good and all uh, any of the serious constitutional challenges to the agency. And therefore, it's kind of a green light for the agency to go forward and operate. Uh, second, uh, those constitutional challenges had actually impeded a number of the agency's enforcement actions and a number of its other activities because they would constantly be raised as a defense in those actions and would distract the court, lead to a different briefing cycle and so forth, and take time away from actually deciding whether the company had violated the law and was mistreating consumers, which is what the enforcement actions are supposed to be about. That, is, that now is no longer happening, although the main fire having been extinguished by the Supreme Court, there are still little brush fires where where this argument is still being raised as a rear guard action in some uh, dispute. The ultimate effect of the change will be that you won't have a period like I had where you have a, uh, an incompatible director serving under uh, a president who strongly disagree, they disagree with one another. I was still a strongly regulatory head of the CFPB and the Trump administration was clearly taking a strongly deregulatory uh, direction. Uh, and so we clashed considerably during the year that I overlapped. That won't happen in the future. What will happen is uh, with the new administration, uh, they will likely replace the CFPB director the same way they replace all cabinet officials. Uh, and then likely during the tenure of that administration, that director or successors will be congenial 
with the outlook of the president in general. Uh, although whether the president will act to try to control the CFPB on very specific issues will depend very much on the temperament and character and uh, outlook of the president and the temperament and character and outlook of the CFPB director. The sense of the ultimate import uh, of the decision. Fascinating from a separation of powers standpoint, but these, I think, are the practical effects from the agency's operational standpoint. Absolutely. So last question, Rich. You know, we are presently in a time when consumers are hurting more than at any other time in this nation's history since probably the Great Depression. So what are some of the most urgent consumer protection issues that you'd like to see Congress or the Bureau take up? Well, that's too long a conversation <laughs> here. The, 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 one, the one issue then, we'll say that, the biggest issue. Well, and I, I've actually um, published a white paper that's available on the platform Medium, uh, and there have been various other pieces written about the white paper in which I urged the current leadership of the Consumer Bureau to recognize that the current crisis poses tremendous perils to consumers. Uh, some of those have been uh, masked or mitigated by the fact that the fiscal uh, and, uh, and monetary response to this crisis has been so aggressive that you've actually had the unusual phenomenon, many bankers have noted now, that at a time when we had had very high unemployment, total household income has actually increased for a lot of families over that time because of the stimulus payments and the uh, enhanced unemployment benefits. That is now perhaps changing. We will see what unfolds here further from Washington and also uh, in the economy more broadly. But no doubt, uh, if unemployment persists at higher levels, you know, more than double what it was at the beginning of the year, uh, we are going to see misery for consumers. By the way, we're also going to see state government and local government layoffs that will expand uh, upon the downturn. Uh, and that causes all kinds of problems for consumers who can't make their payments. Uh, and again, that white paper talks about problems in debt collection, problems in credit reporting, problems potentially in the mortgage market for foreclosures and evictions. Although the mortgage market is much stronger than it was 10 years ago, I think CFPB deserves some of the credit for that. The economic recovery obviously deserves a lot of credit for that. Uh, and we have not had a rash of foreclosures because of aggressive policy measures uh, and a better better regulatory regime and a sounder base from which to begin uh, this time. So anyway, there, there's much to say about that, too much to say for, for this short uh, answer. Uh, as you like. uh, so uh, that could be a whole different uh, conversation. Absolutely. Well, we'll link to the, the paper and the, the podcast show notes. But Rich, we thank you very much for your time today. We thank you for your um, tremendous public service and uh, with me, we wish you all the best and good health. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. Take care. Hello. You're listening to the Duke Law Podcast from the Duke University School of Law. Yeah, I'm an executive director of the Financial Market Center. This episode has been selected to schedule of guest panel discussions at duke.edu.